Welcome to A Healthy Exchange, brought to you by Rural Health Pro's Grow, Connect, Thrive, Be Inspired initiative, which aims to help enhance the capability and well-being of the New South Wales health workforce, particularly in rural and remote areas. Before we start, we acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands of which we work and live. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Jamie Page is an experienced registered nurse with a decade-long medical career and who champions the role of using positive psychology to improve workplaces, especially in healthcare. Jamie's journey began when volunteering in Malawi at 18. It was there he saw firsthand the impact of healthcare on communities. This inspired him to become a nurse in Australia. After working in palliative care, oncology, general surgery and emergency, Jamie now holds a Master's in Leadership, focused on health and human services. Throughout his career, Jamie has sought to understand the role positive psychology can play within the workplace, and in particular, within the medical profession. He has written articles about the effects of positive communication, spoken about the negativity bias he sees within the healthcare system, and regularly shares his insights on positive leadership at industry events. Jamie, welcome and thanks for joining us today. To start, can you tell us what positive psychology is and why the concept resonates with you so much? Absolutely. And it's a real pleasure to be here, Lisa. So thanks very much for having me. Yeah, gosh, good place to start. Positive psychology, I guess maybe just to give you a bit of background of my, you know, my level of understanding or level of expertise in positive psychology is I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a registered psychologist, I'm a registered nurse by background. But I've done a bit of research around the topic of positive psychology uh, as part of my master's in health leadership. So I was introduced to the concept uh, a few years ago, and it was a bit of a, I guess it was a bit of an aha moment for me in the context of me thinking about leadership in health. So positive psychology came about from a man named Martin Seligman, who was the president of the American Psychological Association at the time. And essentially, I guess he started to explore the idea that uh, people uh, generally respond well to positive communication and potentially respond better to positive communication than negative communication. I think it came about from him having interactions with his daughter, who was maybe three or four at the time, who he realized that when he, if he was able to reinforce positive behaviors, more than reinforcing negative behaviors, then he'd actually get a better outcome and that their relationship would actually develop, you know, better than it would otherwise. So I guess he had a bit of an aha moment where he realized that he was spending a lot of time telling her off, uh, as we often do as parents. Uh, and I'm a parent of two as well. And it definitely resonates with me, but spending a lot of time pointing out negatives and, you know, constantly sort of saying, this is where the boundaries are, pointing out where the boundaries are, saying, don't do this, don't do this. And he realized that maybe that was not the right approach. So he just changed his approach slightly and started to outline some, you know, really biased towards the positive. And that sort of led to, and obviously that's a very, that's my version of, of events and, uh, you know, who knows really what actually took place, but that's essentially what led to him and a few other people developing this new movement of psychology and a new way of thinking about um, psychology. And I think it's for me, the context that I learned it in, as I said, was in the context of leadership uh, in organizations and really going from, 
thinking about the way that we structure our organizations, the way that we generally tend to lead in organizations is, in my perspective, much more around pointing out negatives in order to learn from negatives. So we sort of like to sort of bias towards when negative events happen so that we can point it out, learn from it, not let it happen again. But I think that there's a lot to be learnt from the idea of maybe we should actually start biasing more towards identifying where positive things happen. And I think it's a really interesting concept when you start to think about it from a leadership perspective, when you start to think about it from a workplace perspective, a culture perspective. Do we really do that particularly well in our interactions with our teammates? And then also, you know, you can sort of broaden the lens and say, do we do that well in our interactions with our family members? Do we do that well with our interactions with our children, with our partners, whoever it might be, uh, friends, siblings? You know, do we do that well in our general interactions with one another? I think it's an interesting uh, thought experiment and a one that's, um, you know, played on my mind for the last few years, certainly. You touched briefly on research. Has there been a lot of research in this area or is it predominantly anecdotal at, at the moment? Uh, not anecdotal. So positive psychology is a legitimate movement of psychology, uh, very much based on evidence and research. There's a lot of research around many of the concepts in positive psychology Two of the very key sort of pillars of positive psychology that I find really most sort of interesting that speak to me most is the concept of virtuous actions and the concept of affirmative bias. So I sort of touched on negativity before. Affirmative bias is about biasing towards positivity and highlighting positivity or highlighting where things go well in order to sort of um, reinforce positive outcomes, positive behaviours. Virtuous actions is about undertaking positive behaviors towards others without the expectation of any sort of reciprocity, not needing to have any kind of reward or recognition. So just doing it for the sake of doing it, being nice to others, for the sake of being nice to others, highlighting positive things for the sake of highlighting positive things and not expecting that it's going to be done in return. And those two things have had quite a lot of research around the positive implications of those behaviours and how they impact others. And there's a, a lot of research that sort of talks about those concepts. I think the thing that is emerging and the thing that I would love to see more research around, and, and absolutely there's a lot of research out there, it's, it's always, you know, you could trawl through for days, but what I'd love to see is probably a bit more research around the application of positive psychology in workplaces and in healthcare. It's definitely there, but particularly, you know, it'd be great to see more about the, the application of positive psychology in healthcare. Just as a thought on that, we tend to, in research in health, we tend to focus a lot on, on consumer outcomes, on caregiving and the sort of outcomes of the care that we, we provide. But we, I think quite often don't, focuses much on the people who are providing the care. So really looking at the experience of people providing care. And I think that there's possibly not a gap. I think there's plenty of research there, but I think it's still building. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to do more in the way of really understanding what it is that makes people who work in health tick and what, what it is that, that provides a really good environment for them to work in and, and also for them to be their best selves. And, you know, a big part of positive psychology is about providing environments for people to flourish. And that basically just means providing environments for people to 
be their best selves and turn up to work and be their best selves. Because at the end of the day, you know, we are focused on consumer outcomes. We're focused on the care that we're providing to individuals. But the way to do that is to make sure that we've got uh, people who are operating as their best selves on any given day. So I think there's potential to focus a little bit more on, on that as a bit of a, an example of maybe some of the research that led to the positive psychology movement, or I don't know if it led to it, but it definitely sort of reinforced it was around something called the Lasada ratio. And it's basically a ratio that was, that was developed from quite a rigorous study that was done that looked into the interactions of people working in teams. It started off actually looking at the, the interactions of marital couples. So the way that spouses were communicating with one another and they coded the communications and they looked at it over a long period of time and they found that people who bias more towards positive communication with one another are more likely to have longer and more prosperous and nice marriages. And so that then led into the workplace and they start, and they looked at teams and they gave teams a task to do. They sat around, they watched the way that they communicated, they coded the sort of language that they were using with one another. And they found that the teams that were able to use more in the way of positive to negative communication behaviors were more likely to have success and to be more efficient and have more success in the tasks that they were given, which is really interesting. And I can't remember what the Lasada ratio is. I think it's something like six to one or something along those lines. Because importantly about that is, and a big part of positive psychology as well, is that it's not, people get quite hung up on the idea of only thinking about positivity because there's always, you know, it is important to recognize where things don't go well. And it is important to recognize when, when there's adverse outcomes. So it's not about trying to just put that out of the window. And so the ratio is actually quite important because if it's, if, and what they found is if there's too much positive communication, then actually that also reduces the effectivity of the team as well, because it becomes disingenuous, it has less of an impact. So uh, that's a really important part of positive psychology. And that's based on literature. And that's what I was saying before, it's not anecdotal. There is some really good literature that sits behind it. So I found that all incredibly interesting to read about. And you can read about that really easily if you go online. So how do you think that positive reinforcement can play out in a medical setting? So I was a nurse for 10 years. So I worked as a nurse across lots of different areas. I worked in the ward for a long period of time in a few different sort of areas, started in palliative care, moved to oncology. And when I moved to the intensive care unit was where I really started to think deeply about being more aware about the negative outcomes that happen with patients. So it became really apparent to me that when you work in an, in an intensive care unit, you're often seeing your patients at their absolute worst. They're at their absolute sickest. It's their darkest days a lot of the time, their family's darkest days. And as a caregiver in that kind of environment, it's partly really rewarding because you develop skills to be able to look after those patients. You feel like you're really being able to contribute to their journey in a really um, sometimes really profound way. But also with that, it means that all the patients you see are at their very worst. So they're all incredibly unwell. And when they leave, you often don't get the opportunity to find out what their journey looked like after that time when they're with you. You get this bias of like everyone that has 
cancer or everyone that has esophageal cancer ends up in this kind of terrible state in the ICU. And the ones that have complications are the ones that stay for longer and they're in front of you for longer. And you think that everyone that has that type of surgery has those sorts of complications because that's all you see and you don't see the next part of the journey or even all the other patients that didn't have that complication. So you become quite sort of accustomed to thinking about like if that happened to a family member, if that happened to me, then I would end up in that sort of position, which is not a lot of the time is not accurate. It's not true. You just see a very small portion of people who have ended up really unwell for whatever particular reason it is. So I started to think about, okay, well, how could that be shifted? Like, how could we start to practice in a way that allowed us to be able to see the outcomes of the patients or be able to be just more aware of where things do go well or what happens next in the journey? So that was always a real interest of mine. And it was the same when I went to the ED, uh, very much the same. You see people at their darkest point, you know, they are they're most unwell and like I said it's partly really exciting and you've got the skills to do it and you you know really enjoy it but when they leave they're in the ED for the shortest period of time you stabilize them you basically get them to a point where they're ready to go elsewhere it might be the operating theater it might be the ICU wherever it might be and you don't find out about the outcomes for the patient you don't find out about what happens next so I think you asked for a practical sort of example of where I've seen it happen. We started looking at the idea of a debrief for similar purposes in the ED for a structured debriefing procedure, which is not new. It's very common, but we started to sort of think about, okay, how would we do it and how would we do it differently? One part of that was thinking about that follow-up and sort of following the patient's journey and allowing the people that looked after them in that really most critical stage allowing them the opportunity to find out what happened next, whether the outcome was good or whether the outcome was bad, but just allowing them the opportunity to sort of say whether they would like to find out or not. So we, so we did that and we implemented it over the over space of maybe six months or so. We sort of did a pretty rigorous change management approach to sort of implement this debrief and then also hop onto the side of it that they could opt to find out about what the outcome of the patient was and we did a bit of surveying, we talked to staff, but one thing I really wanted to do was actually try and find out whether it was having the impact that I thought it would. This is all anecdotal. This is just me, you know, experiencing uh, things during my career and kind of going, that's interesting that we don't do that. So I did, um, as part of my master's, it all just lined up that I needed to do a, a research project. So I, I did some research. We did semi-structured interviews with 20 or so people that were working in this ED, uh, not all of which who had had the opportunity to actually have a follow-up, but they were all given the opportunity to, to request one if they wanted one. And we found that, yeah, very much so, the conversations that we were having and the way that the interviews went, people were just really appreciative of the idea of being able to have a sense of closure. Closure came up a lot where a lot of the time people were talking about going home from a shift and after you leave, so often your adrenaline is still going while you're in the department, but when you go home, you're probably left ruminating going, I think we did everything right, but did we? And did we know what was even wrong with the patient and you know what happened next? So we heard a lot from people who were 
um, who had just experienced those sort of situations that they were feeling like there was a lot of unanswered questions at the end of it. So it was a qualitative study and we really just did a thematic analysis on those themes that came through in the interviews and we were able to say that people were generally really supportive of the idea of being able to follow up with their patients but you could do a lot more rigorous research around what that really means, what it looks like, how it could look and how it could benefit. But I think that's one example where people are starting to think, and they're still doing it in that ED I left probably two years ago, but they're still still doing it and the practice is still going really well. And have they rolled it out to other hospitals? Do Good you know? question. Good question. Should they roll it out? They, sh- they absolutely should. I mean, that's an interesting question in that it is quite difficult to scale and spread some of these things regardless of how well they've gone, just purely because of the structure of the system that we work in. There was a lot of talk, um, and at the time we were communicating with other EDs and and they were all quite interested in the concept, but the actual application of it and the implementation of it was quite, it took quite a specific approach to make it happen and to make it happen well. So I'd love to see it getting rolled out more. It's it's on my list of things to want to try and do at some point in my life to go back to that and, and make sure that it's being scaled and spread because I think it's important. Well, I'll do a quick plug that Jamie's research paper is online and can be found. Anybody working in um, or listening and working in these departments, have a read and talk to your superiors about it. If we think of in a medical situation, emergency departments are really busy and I would imagine, I've never worked in that environment, it's fast, it's professional, it's clinical Mm. and I'm just wondering if some of this positive psychology can be embedded in some of those environments and situations. Absolutely. So I guess first thing to say is that it's really hard. It's not not easy to take a very particular and consistent approach to to any of this. And as an individual, if you're thinking about it as an individual and you're thinking about it as an individual leader, it can be very difficult to maintain a consistent approach because, as you said, when you've sort of worded your question, you're under a lot of pressure and a lot of strain and constantly working to all sorts of challenges in your day-to-day work. So taking a deliberate and consistent approach to highlighting more positive outcomes is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. But I do also think that if you, there are things that you can do as a leader in a department, as a leader in an organization, which can really help. And one of those is probably noticing who's interested in helping. So noticing who's willing to get on your page If there's people in your department who are showing any kind of signs of, I want to improve culture, I want to help to make things better, and that's department, organization, wherever it will be, as a leader, I think it's really important to highlight, to find those people and to bring them together and try and create a collective energy and a collective focus. That's probably actually how, you know, in my example, that's probably one thing that was really important is that we had... Uh, leadership in the department at the time that had identified that while things weren't like the culture wasn't terrible, but there was a group of people who were interested in trying to make it better. So I think as a leader, 
in any context, finding those people and bringing them around you and helping them help you, allowing them to help you is a really important part of leadership. And often as individuals in leadership positions, we tend to feel like it's all on our shoulders and it's up to us to try and make the difference. But I actually think it's more about enabling others and it's more about, you know, finding those people, the superstars to get around and make the change for you and help you to, to sort of push it forwards. And it's up to you to just guide and allow and enable. You know, from my experience, that was a hugely important part of, of a lot of the improvement activities that I was a part of. And one of them was obviously the debrief and the follow-up, but a big part of it was just being an enabled, enabled to do it and allowed to do it and empowered. So I think as a leader, to be able to to do that, is a, that's a really practical thing that you can do is just look for those people bring them around you, enable them, and allow them to sort of take it forwards. A Healthy Exchange podcast is brought to you by Rural Health Pro with the support of the New South Wales Ministry of Health. If you care about keeping rural Australia healthy, then Rural Health Pro is your community. The Rural Health Pro platform connects health professionals with colleagues, scholarships, training and career opportunities to help them thrive. It's free and easy to join. Visit ruralhealthpro.org today. I guess that leads to having the opportunity to be, be trained and, and taught some of these skills. When it comes to teachings within Australian healthcare, do you think we've got that nailed? Do we, you know, areas of improvement? Yeah, yeah, area of improvement. I think teaching or learning, developing, building capability and capacity of leadership in health is just incredibly important. And I think generally in in health and in clinical positions particularly, we tend to focus more on building clinical capability, which makes, you know, it does make total sense that we obviously want to ensure that people are working at the top of their scope of practice and that they are delivering the care that needs to be delivered but a big part of creating these positive environments for people to flourish is developing leaders that are able to make it happen. And I think generally, in my experience in health, we tend to, people that end up in leadership positions don't necessarily end up in those positions because they've proven an ability or that they've learned the capability to be able to lead. But a lot of the time, they end up in those positions because they're the most experienced and most capable clinician. And from my perspective, I think that that doesn't disclude anyone from being an excellent leader. In fact, I think it's very good to be very experienced and to be very good at your craft. But there are certain things that leaders do that can be learnt, but that we don't necessarily invest in that sort of learning. So I think there's across the system nationally, certainly within Queensland where I work, there is a lot of opportunity to focus more on the development of leadership capability across all levels, even in the clinical levels to be able to really, you know, I guess I speak from a nursing perspective, teaching people at an at a early stage of their nursing career, what leadership actually means in the clinical setting as well is really important. And that's when I say invest more, I mean, invest more time, invest more focus, invest more energy in uplifting people's ability to be able to lead and and what their understanding is of what leadership really means. I was saying at all levels, it's in the clinical setting, 
early stages of people's careers, starting to really teach them what it means to be able to, to be a good leader, even in, in the clinical setting. And then when you start to move into those management positions, what is the difference between management and leadership? And what is the, the need for managers to also be able to lead and leaders to also be able to manage? So those, those sorts of things, I think we really need to, to develop more of a focus on. And I'm grateful, I guess, that I, I do get to do a lot of that work. It's deliver a lot of the sort of leadership training in Queensland or a fair bit of it, and then very much enjoy it. You know, it's always amazing to see how people respond generally people are really you know people want to know more they want to learn more about how to lead they're in these positions and and often finding it really difficult because they're not given any of the capability so when you start to sort of develop the the toolkit you see people just their eyes light up and they get so motivated and they feel like they can go and do it and it's with a really simple process of giving them a bit of a toolkit and some things to think about and i would imagine that then flows into the whole positive psychology piece yeah, understanding positive psychology for me was a, more about giving me a framework to think about how I would approach leadership and think about how I would approach helping others to be their best selves and providing them with a great environment to be able to flourish and, and be their best selves. Positive psychology doesn't happen without leaders and without strong leaders. It's not a top-down sort of approach, but it definitely helps if you've got people within an organization, in positions, whatever it might be, in team leadership positions, if you've got people there that are able to bias towards the affirmative and try and not only highlight the negatives and, and you know, create these environments that help people to feel like they can, they can really be their best selves, I think leadership's a huge part of that, really important part of it. In the past, you've spoken about brain gain versus brain drain. Can you explain to me what that's about and how that plays into this? I think brain gain versus brain drain is a concept about, again, it's a concept about creating environments that attract people. And healthcare workforce is a big part of the work that I'm doing at the moment. We're always, it's a huge system problem at the moment that we've got a workforce that is under a lot of pressure the sort of lifespan of a registered nurse or of, of a clinician, I think, is being challenged because of the difficulty and the high expectations, the uh, the shift work, everything else makes it a really difficult job to keep going and sustainably for a long period of time. So in that sense, it's really important for leaders to be also thinking about how we develop environments that attract people and retain people. The concept of brain drain versus brain gain is all about allowing for an environment that uh, creates the potential for smart people who are talented to feel like they're able to give enough that they don't want to go elsewhere. So encouraging, and again, it, it links in really nicely with positive psychology, but it's encouraging people who are wanting to give back, encouraging them and allowing them the space to be able to do so. A bit of an example would be I've been on teams where uh, the culture is really strong and you see it and you feel it and you feel uh, people who are talented, who are interested in sort of being part of a really great culture. You see them come to you and say, hey, can I talk to your boss? Because it sounds like it's a really good place to work. And you say, yes. And then over time, you sort of see that build and build. And the same goes, unfortunately, for the opposite where, and it can happen really fast, but where the culture starts to drop off even if the culture is not terrible, if the culture is not quite, uh, if it doesn't offer a really great place to work, 
then those people who are most talented are going to start looking elsewhere. So they're going to start looking for other opportunities because they've got the options to do so. So it's a challenge. Brain gain is a massive challenge because it's about creating a consistent um, and sustainable culture that is good enough that it makes people who are talented come to you and not the other way around. I have one final question for you, Jamie, and what advice would you have for nurses and healthcare professionals more broadly when it comes to protecting their well-being in such a demanding profession? When it comes to protecting your well-being, there are certain things that you can do. And one of the things we talk a lot about when we're delivering the multiple workshops that we do is the circle of influence and the circle of concern. So we often ask people in the workshops to sort of write down what's on their mind, what's troubling them at the moment, what are the difficulties that they're, what are the challenges that they're dealing with? And then you tell them to draw two circles and think about the difference between what's within your circle of influence versus what's in your circle of concern. Your circle of influence are the things that you have direct influence over. So what are the things that you can directly influence? And then everything that sits outside of that is then in your circle of concern. So for example, the weather. You can't control the weather on any given day, so that sits outside of the circle of influence. It's in your circle of concern. What we often find, though, is that people tend to, the first time they do this exercise, a lot of what they write down ends up in their circle of concern, outside of their circle of influence. And the challenges that you're trying to give to people is how do you make the circle of influence bigger? So how do you create bigger circle of influence so that you can start to, some of those things that you might, first thing sit outside of the circle of influence actually start to become things that you can you can at least you know have some level of influence over over elements of so you know it might be we are understaffed at the moment a lot of people would put that kind of thing outside of the circle of influence i have no influence over the sort of level of staffing that we have at the moment but then you sort of break that down you say okay what does that you know what are the elements of that and one of the elements is okay how do we do a recruitment drive can we ask one of our staff to sort of get onto social media and start to uh, talk about how great it is to work here so we can sort of develop a bit of a presence so we might be able to attract more people in or whatever it might be. But the idea is, and that's a really, you know, very loose example, but the idea is, okay, really challenging yourself to think about what sits outside of your circle of influence at the moment and whether you can actually make the circle of influence bigger to cover some of those things off. Often as well, the flip side of that is if it is in your circle of concern and it's not part of your circle of influence and you have no control over it, then try not to worry about it. So easy, really easy to say, more difficult to do, but sometimes just sitting down and doing that process, which is a bit of a quirky process, but if you can sit down and just do it, it helps you to sort of visualize where things sit, really kind of understanding, okay, that is completely outside of my control. There's no part of that that I can control. So I'm not going to focus my energy on it. I'm going to focus on something else. And I think reminding yourself of that when you need to is really good. Obviously, all the other things like looking after your spiritual well-being, looking after your, your friendships, your social circles, your family, going for a walk, getting out into the sunshine, like doing some of those proactive things, they all sit inside your circle of influence. So you can do those things. If you're feeling like you're really low on energy, you can go for a walk, you can go for a run and you might actually feel better. And if you do, then make sure that you put that back in your circle of influence and you do it again. I love that concept of your circle of influence and putting the things in there, even if it is meditating or going for a walk, because you can have 
control over that. Jamie Page, great tips. Thank you for the chat. Really appreciate your time today. It's been a real pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. A Healthy Exchange is produced by Rural Health Pro, funded by New South Wales Health. For more information, visit our website at ruralhealthpro.org forward slash s forward slash New South Wales Health. That's ruralhealthpro.org forward slash s forward slash New South Wales Health. In the meantime, please like, follow and share. Thanks for listening. The information provided in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. The views expressed are that of the presenters and not of New South Wales Health or Rural Health Pro.